Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, which is their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We are now down to number 11 on their list. Which means that on this episode, we'll be talking about Eric Wolfgang Korngold's score to the 1938 swashbuckling classic, The Adventures of Robin Hood. The Adventures of Robin Hood was written for the screen by Norman Riley Rain and Seton I. Miller, based upon ancient Robin Hood legends. It was produced at Warner Brothers. The uncredited executive producer was Hal Wallace, and it was directed by Michael Curtiz and William Keeley. John, why don't you tell the nice people about The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938? Well, as the title tells you, this movie cobbles together a number of the adventures of the legendary English folk hero Robin Hood, full of sword fighting, romance, and daring do. Robin Hood is played by Errol Flynn. His love, Maid Marian, is played by Olivia de Havilland. His enemy, Sir Guy of Gisborne, is played by Basil Rathbone. And the wicked Prince John is played by Claude Rains. So in this movie, Claude Rains' Prince John is a pretender to the throne of England. Robin Hood, fighting on behalf of the absent Richard the Lionhearted, does battle against him, wins the hand of Maid Marian, shoots arrows, robs from certain people, and gives to certain other people. I'll look into who they are later. (laughs) And he, in general, has just a grand old fun time. Good enough? Good enough. So, Andy, I have always thought that sword fighting is super cool, and I have a theory as to why fighting with swords is so exciting and entertaining. Oh, I thought you were going to say I have a theory as to why I have always thought that, and it was going to be a theory about you. About my particular affinity to sword fighting? Well, you said I have always thought sword fighting is really cool. All right, that's nice, John. Now I know something about you, and I have a theory (laughs) as to why... I'm like that. Let's hear your theory. (laughs) What's your theory as to why I'm like that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know you as well as you do. Well, my theory as to why it's cool is Uh that the sword is the only weapon that is simultaneously offense and defense. Is the only weapon. Right? Uh, Probably. Yeah, because you use a sword to defend against the other sword that the guy's trying to sword you with. Yes, I can't think of any other weapon that has that property. And indeed, that is why they're cool. They hold it in one hand and do some acrobatics, and they encompass all of the offense and defense and strategy all in that same set of motions. Yeah, in one hand. Anyway, I really got a kick out of watching all the sword fighting in this movie. I like sword fighting. John, I have a question that I didn't think I was going to ask, and that I didn't look up, so it's a genuine question that I bet you know the answer to. Does this movie count as a swashbuckler if there's no swash and no buckle? (laughs) Well, wait a minute. I actually did look up the etymology of the word swashbuckling, because I thought that at the very least we can offer the listeners that we could do a drinking game, you know, whenever, every time we say the word swashbuckler. This is going to be my only time, so take a big gulp right now. I'm not going to talk about swashbucklers, (laughs) unless John tells me something about swash. That I didn't know. Well, tell me what you think swash and buckle mean first. Well, I don't want to be on the record saying something super stupid, so you're making me Google it right now. Ah, aha, buckler in terms of a shield. All right. Right. A buckler is a small shield that you just hold out in front of you. Right, right. I think of this in the context of Don Quixote. I know what a buckler is. Sure. Sure. So, but by using the word buckler in the description of these kinds of roguish adventure people... It's specifically calling out that they're not wearing armor. Uh-huh. They're more seat-of-their-pants adventure than, you know, clunking around in big, heavy armor. They just got a buckler. 
And then swash means swaggering with a sword. Yeah, well, I saw it here just suggesting that it, it refers to the sword striking the buckler. Okay, I'm sure that, you know, that too. But yeah, boy, this is uh, the quintessential swashbuckler, isn't it? Yeah, but going back to your point just a second ago, there are no bucklers in this, man. They just had the little hilt guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the spirit of the swashbuckler is this daring-do, urbane, adventurous rogue who you can see his handsome face. You know, I think the tradition in Hollywood started with Douglas Fairbanks. You know, he had a silent version of Robin Hood and then all the other pirate movie kind of stuff where Douglas Fairbanks would uh, sword fight. Jump down a sail or jump up a rope or whatever. So I think this movie specifically was, you know, hewing to that tradition, the swashbuckling tradition of Hollywood. But yeah, you know, I took a peek at Captain Blood, which is the first Errol Flynn swashbuckler with music by Korngold. And I also took a peek at the Seahawk Uh a couple years later, a later swashbuckler with Errol Flynn with music by Korngold, just to get a sense of how this fit in, what those were like. It seems like Captain Blood takes place in the 17th century and the Seahawk takes place in the 16th century. So I wondered, oh, is the swashbuckler, does it involve these periods? But it really, to you, just means a film focusing on daring do. Yeah. And I think specifically with sword fighting in it. That's what I would say. Also important to point out that you have just had people take a couple more drinks where you didn't think you were going to. Oh, it's true. Well, enjoy, folks. Yeah. Listen, just go ahead and buckle your own swashes. Okay, so John, before we even get to the score, how do you feel about The Adventures of Robin Hood? Do you like this movie? I had a great time with this movie. I thought it was a fun romp that really held up surprisingly well for me. How about you? I am so glad to hear you say that because I really like this movie. I feel like it is both beloved and still underrated. I think people don't realize how good a time this movie is. It's a good time. If you had not been into it, I would have had a hard time getting through this episode without feeling like (laughs) I was on the defensive about how much I like this movie. Yeah, I hadn't seen this movie before watching it for this podcast. And yeah, it's terrific fun. And it held up. It felt, you know, as modern as it needed to be. Yeah. It really doesn't show its age nearly as obviously as so many other movies of that era. Yeah. And we were just a couple weeks ago talking about King Kong from five years before. Right. They're like from different dimensions. Absolutely. Every aspect of the filmmaking craft has evolved to a qualitatively higher level. It's a quantum leap. Yeah. In just five years from the photography to the acting and writing and technical prowess. Yeah. In particular... A key thing here is that they have lavished the money on this so that it can be filmed in Technicolor, and it is spectacular Technicolor. It's glorious Technicolor, as Technicolor wants you to say. And just the difference in your sense of what universe this is coming from is so extreme. It really is beautiful, and I mean, the the green fields of England are so green, the greenest greens in any movie, you know? Yeah, and then all the colors of heraldry and the flags and the knights, and yeah, it just pops off the screen. When I was a kid, I had the N.C. Wyeth illustrated Robin Hood. You know Ooh. what I'm talking about? They like those. Yeah, I think I do. Golden Age of Illustration. N.C. Wyeth was one of the great painter illustrators of that era. The famous Treasure Island and Kidnapped, and I think I had a Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, if I didn't have that book as a kid, I at least you know read it in a library or something like that. Yeah, well, honestly, the text in the Robin Hood edition that he illustrated is maybe not the best Robin Hood, but the illustrations were so great, I would just flip through and look at those illustrations a lot. And I could swear the design for this movie, they probably looked at those illustrations, like yeah. lush, deeply saturated colors, and all the sort of mystery and cozy, inviting feelings you get looking at those classic illustrations and i feel like 
the score to this movie is like the musical equivalent of those deliciously inviting illustrations. It's like the yeah. orchestral way of doing what those illustrators would do with paint. I'm tired. What? After a nice refreshing sleep in the Greenwood, I pulled seven acorns out of my ribs. Lovely fresh air. Well, I'm glad you used the word illustration. I think we're going to have to come back to that word in particular. Oh, definitely. But I think a really important ingredient in why it's still so entertaining and holds up so well is this pervasive sense of confidence, you know, that emanates from the main character. He's just this dashing rogue who trusts that everything's going to turn out. He can fight his way out of whatever it is. All of this danger that he's willingly walking into, all of these noble aims that he has about safeguarding England, it's all seen through the lens of just a fun time romp. I think the score absolutely is propping up that aspect of it, just making everything feel like it is just a carousing great adventure that the stakes aren't really real. It's just going to turn out to be a great fun time. Yeah, you know, when they're having the quarterstaff battle, so when he meets Little John in the woods, they step out onto a log. He says, you can't pass without getting through me. And then he says, wait, I'll go get a staff and we'll fight. And then they fight. The music is just like, they are having the time of their lives. This is so much fun. And I thought, like, this is in no way a fight. It's like what kids feel like when they are pretending to fight in a movie. Yeah, these characters have clearly entered into these quote-unquote fights with each other, sort of just by means of shaking hands with each other and just going through fun play motions. They know that they're going to wind up being allies at the end of this little exchange. So I do want to play the music for that quarterstaff fight because that is, yeah, just so much fun. But let's first play the music for the prior big action scene when Robin Hood first goes to Prince John's castle and Prince John shows him this sort of pretended hospitality, blah, blah, blah. There's a big fight. Everybody tries to get Robin Hood, but he just fights his way out with charm and panache. This sounds like a big, swirling action romp. It is absolutely cheerful, it's exciting, but there's a lot of heavy sounds, you know, big brass, big strings, percussion. He's putting a lot of energy into this music, even though it still sounds cheerful. So now let's contrast that to this is the next bit of action that we see when Robin Hood fights Little John, who he already sort of knows is his friend, even though this is when they first meet each other, I guess. You need a merry tune? Well, how's this? Hearing these pizzicato strings and this very agile, light-footed action music, the contrast with the previous action music especially makes the point of how much fun Robin Hood and Little John are having. Uh, I see. You're saying in contrast to, like, a serious battle that matters. Right. But I think the bigger point we're making is that even the serious stuff in this movie... 
this is not scary. This is delightful. Right. It's absolutely delightful, and it's not really scary. If it was scary, there would be, you know, minor chords in it. Everything is just consonant and... Yeah, delightful, cheerful, but it's still got a lot of, you know, force behind it. Yeah, it's absolutely true, but I like that observation you just made about no minor chords. It is something I thought in passing. Korngold seems to get more distance out of major chords. He can do a lot with a series of, you know, surprising major chords, and then familiar major chords, and then unexpected ones, and then the expected ones. It is all just so cheerful, so exuberant. Yeah. language of it is so bright and wide-eyed and positive. And I do think that, you know, if you sort of tallied up the harmonies, it's there on the page. The harmonies are almost all sweet, and he finds ways to keep all kinds of interest. It doesn't get monotonous as a result of staying in that zone. He has a whole world in that zone. Yeah, we're definitely in agreement that the serious, quote-unquote, action music for, you know, the fights between the good guys and the bad guys in the movie, you know, which have stakes to them, and there are lots of guys fighting each other with actual weapons and stuff. But here, let's pick this. Here's a fun moment when all of the merry men are waiting in ambush for Basil Rathbone's character, Sir Guy. When Basil Rathbone rides his horse with his entourage through the Sherwood Forest and under the trees, all the merry men jump out of the trees and fall down and knock everybody off their horses and ambush them and wind up capturing everybody. But the moment when they fall out of the trees, it's just like, wee fun times! It's just fun times! like is I had the thought that the whole movie feels like a musical Uh uh-huh and this is like a dance number and the music is almost like dance music sure sure if you didn't see what was on screen and I told you well it's like a hundred Busby Berkeley dancers you might say okay well I can believe it (laughs) sure great it's fun because it's musical it the music is really driving the whole experience yeah so again this is a serious fight but the seriousness of it the life and death stakes of it are absolutely not showing up in the music you know it's got a lot of orchestral energy behind it it's got a lot of notes it's a lot of action and motion but it's all in the service of just this carousing rollicking romp and so yeah i really think the music has this really important job to do in the movie to not transcribe the action of the fight but instead to characterize it to give you an overall feeling of what this swashbuckling action feels like what role it has in the story and that that role is one of just a grand old time in effect that's what those old illustrations would do Yes, to some degree, they show you like what it might look like if people were doing the thing you read described. But the main thing they were bringing was this sense of pleasure, just like to give you as much visual pleasure as possible to let you understand what a place to get lost in this is, you know, Mm. to let your imagination settle in here and enjoy itself. 
Yeah, to add emotional information to the pure visual description, it's characterizing what you're looking at. Yeah, but it's not emotional information necessarily about what the characters feel about each other or about their right. situation. It's emotional information about what you, the audience, might well savor yes. about this experience of reading this book or, in this case, watching this movie. Come have a good time. Here's how to have a good time. Yeah. Come on in. The water's fine. So speaking of illustration, I feel like we should get to this quote from a letter that Korngold wrote in the process of taking this job, which was an interesting process we should talk about. So yeah. Korngold... Well, he's from Vienna, first of all. That's right. I mean, if we're going to go back and talk about Korngold, Korngold was a child prodigy compared to Mozart. Some people say, you know, greater even because of the complexity of what he was doing at a young age. You can argue about who's the greatest child prodigy, but I think there's no question, you know, let's just put up some music. Here's some music that he wrote when he was 11. want to put up some music that I wrote when I was 11? <laughs> Just to show you that this is special? I think people can probably hear yeah. the level of confidence and kind of ease with the orchestra and the whole world of composition. He was just considered a phenomenon. Okay, so it's 1937. Korngold was 40 years old, and he was well-established. He was focused on his opera career. He was a composer of operas. The fact that he has done a few film scores is still not really the center of his musical life. He gets a telegram from Warner Brothers saying, we'd really like you to do this Robin Hood movie. Can you take a ship and be over here to see it in a couple weeks? He says, okay, and goes over and starts composing in his head. Right, which was a big deal. You know, let's remember he had to take first kind of a treacherous car ride all across Europe to get to the boat. And then the boat crossing takes however many weeks that takes, during all of which time he was kind of pacing the deck of the boat and thinking of themes for Robin Hood. and Based pretty much just on the idea that this was a movie about Robin Hood. Yeah, he did research on the old legends, you know, not necessarily what the script of the movie was. He was going to have the script of the movie waiting for him in New York when he got into port. They couldn't fax it to him. Right, of course, you can't telegram a whole script. Yeah. And then when he would get to LA, he would get to actually watch the current state of the movie. Right, of course, he has to take a train from New York to LA. And that takes however long that takes. It's a whole thing that he, it's a whole like. Yeah, yeah. When you hear about people doing international deals in the old days, that, that was heavy duty. He goes and he's excited to do it. You know, he throws himself into it on this long, arduous journey. Right. So let's just jump to the moment. He gets to California, he gets to Hollywood, is brought to the screening to watch the movie that he is about to score, and is completely disheartened as he's watching it to discover that it is. A big action movie. He thought it was going to be more of a drama. And then he writes a letter the next day saying he can't do the job. And now I will quote from this letter. Please believe a desperate man who has to be true to himself and to you. A man who knows what he can do and what he cannot do. Robin Hood is no picture for me. I have no relation to it and therefore cannot produce any music for it. I am a musician of the heart, of passions and psychology. I am not a musical illustrator for a 90% action picture. Being a conscientious person, I cannot take the responsibility for a job which, as I already know, would leave me artistically completely dissatisfied and which, therefore, I would have to drop even after several weeks of work on it. Therefore, let me say no. Okay. So this is such an interesting way of thinking in 1937. I am a musician of the heart 
of passions and psychology. I am not a musical illustrator for a 90% action picture. It sounds to me like what he is calling out that he does not want to do is the score to King Kong that we talked about. You know, we kind of dragged it a little bit for only transcribing the action, for not offering other information besides the characters are going up and now they're going down and there's frenetic action on the screen and so therefore there's frenetic action in the orchestra. The music was just sort of repeating, doubling what we were already looking at on the screen in King Kong, which, you know, we don't have to get into how that was itself groundbreaking and worthwhile, but it seems to me that the Max Steiner style that you know, had been around now for three, four years, was what he didn't want to do. He wanted to use his music to tell an audience about the heart, the passions, the psychology, all of the stuff that you and I have been talking about how music is doing for all these other movies. I also think that something that's operative here is the kind of skepticism of the popular that you talked about a little bit last time. I think there's just always been a skepticism of, you know, well, this is an action movie. This is a really Hollywoody movie. This is not like a yeah. high-minded literary drama. This is, yeah, it doesn't have really any depth to it. It's all a spectacular surface. And, well, that's just not who I am. I smell a little of that here. Yeah, I think that's right. And I feel like the response is kind of a classic protesting too much. Like, he says, I'm not a musical illustrator for a 90% action picture. Well, he is. He is, in <laughs> fact, you know, like one of the all-time greatest musical illustrators. He shows with incredible virtuosity and invention and all of this glorious sound that, yeah, he's a spectacular musical illustrator. It's really just a question of whether that's embarrassing or not. I think that <laughs> is at stake here. But okay, so let's just cap off the story. Yeah, great. This is a hell of a story. The capper to the story is he sent that letter. So then the guy from the studio came to his house to talk him into it. He had just taken the whole journey to get there. I bet they felt like no matter how much this letter says, don't try and make me change my mind, they should probably work on him a little bit. So they sent someone over. And the moment when the guy was getting to his house, he receives a phone call basically informing him that Germany was annexing Austria. That the Anschluss was about to happen. Hitler was meeting with the Austrian chancellor. That's right. And uh, he as a Jew should not go back. You know, this kind of crisis moment that kind of burned the bridge behind him. Yeah. Suddenly he had reason for his own safety and protecting his own future to stay in California, you know, indefinitely. So the appeal of taking on a job, even if it seemed like the wrong artistic job, suddenly... Suddenly skyrocketed. Yeah, in the course of a day, in the course of that day. Right. First, he worried about getting his family out of Austria, uh, which, like, somebody should make a movie of this story. It's a great story. His family just happened to make their way on the last train out of Austria that they didn't have to show papers that they wouldn't have been able to show or something like that. Yeah. They made it out by the skin of their teeth. And, you know, so, yeah, his family did wind up making it out and being safe. And given that, he was then, his mind was clear to say, okay, well, I'm here. I'll do this job. I have to. Yeah, he actually took the job on a, he said, I'll only take it on a week-by-week -week basis. And if at any point I say, no, 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 I can't do this. I have to quit. You have to let me quit. They said, sure. And then it says the internal document back at Warner Brothers says, he's definitely doing the music. <laughs> they knew he wouldn't quit. Well, he didn't. He didn't, yeah. He wrote this. So we're listening to this action music, you know, this is a score for one of these big pitched battles, epic sword fight stuff happening. I just wanted to talk about how much illustrating he is and isn't doing with this music. You know, it just sounds like it's full of all of these motions and actions, the music, there's runs, there's 
energy every which way. There's feels like there are feints and jabs and swoops in the music, but in fact it doesn't actually correspond to actions on the screen. Oh yeah, there's very little Mickey Mousing in this. Yeah, there's very little Mickey Mousing, this term that we've used before to mean specifically matching the music to exactly transcribe the action, the stuff that we were saying in King Kong, when people are going up, the music goes up. Yeah, there are a few spots of that. There are a few specific wishes where, like the stunt when he rides the rope up to the top of the castle gate, or when the merry men jump out of the trees. Yeah, I actually noted that jumping up the rope, I thought, boy, as a direct contrast to King Kong, where we were like, what do you think it sounds like when he goes up? And then we played it. Here's just a little snippet of what that sounded like in King Kong. We sort of snickered at it because like, that's a pretty simple way to make it sound like something is going up. Here's Corn Gold essentially doing the same thing. Oh, I'm just going to have rising figures to indicate motion going up and then falling figures as he climbs down the rope on the other side. don't need to do a technical analysis. It doesn't matter what the names for what he's doing are. The point is anyone can hear he is employing just a much larger kit of musical techniques. He's calling on just a deeper, richer craft. Yeah. And that counts for so much in the task of illustration. You know, I feel like it's okay to illustrate. It's actually perfectly fine to just match action if you're matching it with just incredible panache. I mean, it seems easy for me to call back an example of matching action with incredible panache in the music in the bike chase of E.T. That apparently is my favorite cue I have learned over the course of doing this podcast. Yeah. There, the bikes make these jumps. The music goes... But it's totally woven into this utterly skillful, masterful kit of overall action. So yeah, similarly, it's just a more subtle, more evolved... It's just more engaging. I mean, like, it's something for your ears. It sparkles. not talk too much about these two measures but uh just like the entire rest of the score it's tasty (laughs) i mean this score is just tasty from top to bottom Yeah, and so, yeah, I was saying, we watch all of this action, we watch all of these sword fights, and at the same time, we hear music that sounds, yeah, balletic. It sounds like it's accompanying a dance, and yet the moves of the dance that maybe a choreographer would be inspired to choreograph based on this music, that's not exactly the dance that we're watching on screen. It's not exactly matching the action. Music goes brum, bum, brum. That doesn't necessarily correspond to somebody jabbing with their sword once, brum, and then again, brum, another time. It's not that closely associated. Instead, it's this broad association. We're watching a rollicking, adventurous, energetic fight, and we're listening to a rollicking, adventurous, energetic music that is about that fight mm-hmm. without being the transcription of that fight, and somehow they meld together in your experience. Or, I'm going to venture even further, it's about a fight like that, 
it's about fights. And by the music having so much musical integrity and being, you know, sort of like dance music, the fight that you're hearing in the music becomes like exactly equally valid as the fight that you're seeing on screen. They are sort of equal partners in enjoying the concept of a fight. They both access. Yeah, I like that. They're both accessing this kind of platonic ideal of a fight. Both the action on the screen and the music, you know, they're not exactly literal. They're sort of evoking a legendary ideal in your head of what a swashbuckling sword fight is, and therefore you get to enjoy that ideal. Which is very much what you might see in, for example, a ballet, where, you know, the dance is not a realistic performance of a drama. It's a stylized into dance performance of right. a drama. And similarly, the music is not the sound of the drama. It's a stylized into sound. And these two stylizations link up and there's lift to it when they link up. But it's not like one is assisting the other. They're joined with almost equal value. And I'm reminded of a thing that was quoted, I think, in the liner notes of the re-recording that some critic writing at the time said that Korngold's score was great foreground music, did not deserve to be called background music, as so much movie music is, because it's music. It's like actual pieces of musically worked out ways of illustrating the story, illustrating the material, but not slavishly supporting this particular second and that particular second, although the sync is still beautiful. Yeah. Korngold was completely sensitive to the synchronization necessities of the form, I think with more grace and more insight than we saw in the Steiner score from five years ago by a long shot. Oh, by a long shot, for sure. You know, I'm actually reminded of something that you said way back when we talked about Ben-Hur. You said that when the music is linking up with the action, it becomes, you know, the other stereo eyepiece, and you see the whole thing in 3D. And I really felt that here, that in one eye, in one uh, metaphoric eye, you're watching a visual stylization of a swashbuckling sword fight. And then in the other metaphoric eye, which in this case is your ear, uh, you are listening to a equivalently valid musical stylization of a swashbuckling sword fight. And when you experience them at the same time, you know, it becomes stereo vision. It gives an extra depth and dimension to the overall whole. Yeah. You know, what's a great example of that? In the final duel at the end between Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone, between Robin Hood and Sir Guy of Gisborne, there's this very clever depiction of a sword fight in musical sound. This figure that totally, once you know what it is, it sounds like the swords whacking each other as one guy advances on the other. Phrase lengths shrink and they get closer to each other. It's a very clever musical illustration. Those swords that you hear slashing in the orchestra are not the swords on screen. They don't clink at the same time. You right. know, here's the sound overlaid on the music. It is. It's like you're hearing two sword fights at once, but there's no sense of a dissonance uh -huh. between them. They support each other in exactly that way you're describing. Okay, so speaking of illustrating and characterizing an action in a way that stereoscopically melds with it, if you had to score somebody shooting an arrow and you see the archer draw back his bow and <laughs> lets his arrow go straight to my lover's heart, and then the camera cuts immediately to the target when now we see the arrow after a small amount of time has passed, we see the arrow twang into the target. How would you score that? What do you need to convey there? Movement, John. I think you need to convey movement, and you also need to convey the point of landing, because the crucial point is when the arrow hits the target. Yeah, it's kind of a, like a 
Right? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do to make a musical whapung? Here's what Korngold does. So we see Robin Hood aiming his arrow, pulling back the bow, and then this little fanfare motif, it actually starts an instant before he lets the arrow fly. And then this little motif, these few notes carry us over the cut to the archery target, and now we see the arrow land in the target at the exact instant that we get to the climax of the little fanfare, the arrival note. So this little fanfare has taken on the momentum of the arrow. You know, it's a simple thing. If you're hearing it without watching the movie, it just sounds like little fanfares. But I thought it was so well chosen, so canny a way to, you know, choose the important points in the arrow flight and then have the music do a similar thing. Right. What makes that brilliant is that exactly that figure has been used to establish the pomp and circumstance of the occasion with all of these, you know, shots of royal trumpeters standing in a row. That's the fanfare for the occasion. Mm-hmm. just heard it 10 times just signifying that some grand royal thing is going on. And this is another cool thing about the score actually is Korngold does a really cool job of incorporating source music into the score music. Like every time we see these fanfare trumpets, we see these row of courtly guys holding these long herald trumpets is what they're called. And they play these medieval fanfare sounding stuff and it just continues straight into the score. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That fanfare becomes what you have pointed out is a beautiful, not too obvious and yet perfect Mickey Mousing of the arrow shots. It works perfectly in both functions. Did it occur to you that this is like the most expensive possible way to trap Robin Hood? <laughs> they have this whole tournament just to lure him in because he won't be able to resist a tournament. Oh my God, couldn't you come up with something cheaper that he couldn't resist? It's crazy how much they spend on this. <laughs> it's also crazy to me that Robin Hood goes into it knowing exactly that it's a trap, knowing exactly <laughs> what they're trying to do. And he's like, right. yeah, I know it's a trap. I'm here to get trapped. What? what is- and his plan to escape is to <laughs> just run away right at the last second through a crowd that immediately right. grabs him. He didn't really work that through. His buddies are like, why are you doing this? And I don't really understand if he actually has an answer to that. He basically just says, yeah, what? I'm walking into a trap. What, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. How could he not do it? How could he resist? I like how they're like, they, they, they say, we'll set up a tournament and we'll offer, I don't know, how about a golden arrow? Like, ooh, he's going to want a golden arrow. And then they show the golden arrow on a pillow. No one wants a golden arrow. What are they going to do with that? It's one of the worst possible MacGuffins. (laughs) Yeah, but we needed to have an archery tournament in the movie. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right. So he goes to this archery tournament. God knows why. So that little fanfare, does that have a relationship, do you think, with the Robin Hood fanfare itself? Well, yeah, you know, I started to look for musical connections, and you could find all kinds of things depending on how much detective work you think is appropriate here. I honestly don't know exactly where to draw the lines with these things, but sure, there's a Robin Hood figure that you hear throughout in many different guises, and its simplest form is da-da-da-da. Yes. So, sure, the second through fourth notes of that four-note figure are the first three notes of the fanfare. Da, 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 da. So I don't want to go through and get too deep into analyzing all these different themes, but let's go ahead and play the Robin Hood fanfare the first time we hear it and then show how it shows up in a couple of other guises elsewhere in the movie. So we're first introduced to Robin Hood. He 
gallops into the shot. Here he comes riding up, and here is his exciting Robin Hood fanfare. Those final triumphant chords there cut to the close-up of Errol Flynn's face as he's introduced, and it just, like, could not be a more satisfying two-second entrance. I think this is the maximum impact for a, and here's our hero, and here's his music. Yeah. Boy, it's done so efficiently and so powerfully. So then just a little bit later on, our hero shows up at the bad guy's castle, and he's carrying... I don't don't have to describe this. Oh, you should describe it. It's hilarious. (laughs) He's carrying a dead royal deer, and he, like, bumps people with a deer to show how (laughs) kick-ass he is. He, like, antlers some guards in the belly with it as he's going by. Yeah, he's got it, like, around his shoulders, and he's just, like, swaggering with it back and forth, knocking people around with his deer. As he does so, we hear that same Robin Hood fanfare, but it's got now this like tension underneath it. It's striding through a little bit of friction instead of the totally triumphant version we heard before. Yeah, it's a little more rugged. Yeah. But I like what Korngold does here where he introduces these, yeah, slightly tense chords that come after it, and then he kind of chugs through them. Here they are, and here they are in a slightly faster rhythm, and here they are chomping along. If I were composing, it would never occur to me to do that as a way to indicate swagger. But it's brilliant. It's perfect. Somehow this music sounds like this guy swaggering into this room full of his enemies just by kind of speeding up these tough chords. I don't know, maybe it doesn't come across for everyone else, but when I heard that, I thought, what a simple thing to do musically, and yet what a delightfully specific illustration it is. Yeah, what swash. Yeah. Right? Didn't you say that to yourself? Boy, that is some swash. I didn't say that, but sure. A cool transformation of it, among many, but, you know, it's an obvious, ooh, he transformed it, is in the big love scene where he climbs up the castle wall and sneaks into a room and they kiss, begins with this sentimentalized, love scenified version of his little fanfare. Instead of... It's this... Over dreamy harps and strings, it's the romantic night. You see him climbing up the matte painting. Yeah, there he is, because he's Robin Hood. It's the same motif. But I do think that it becomes a little misleading about how this movie feels and functions to pick it apart too much. Yeah, I agree. Because... It really is illustrative rather than psychological. I mean, the distinction that Korngold made in that quote, I think gets at something legitimate about what is going on in this movie. He just then met that with incredible facility and sensitivity and insight. But yeah, these motifs do recur and do get changed, but that change doesn't really correspond to development in the course of the action. It just serves to help illustrate each thing. It's not as though the listener is experiencing a drama of motivic change, like we were talking about with, say, Vertigo or Wagner. Yeah, that's right. I think the themes in this movie 
don't undergo that, you know, sort of Wagnerian evolution and interconnectedness like we were talking about in Vertigo. But the themes that there are, I think he gets really good mileage out of. I think he gets a lot of really good use out of them. They're all attractive and, you know, they connect to the people and the things that they represent, I think, very readily. And, uh, you know, they're useful and entertaining. Yeah, the themes are wonderful. And, of course, to illustrate a movie in the simplest way, you still want to have great themes. And this movie really does have great themes and they're solidly connected to the things that they relate to. Like, let's take the King Richard theme. So I think it's right at the beginning of the movie that we first hear it. The first sort of expository title card explaining that we're in medieval England and that King Richard has left on a crusade and left his wicked brother Claude Rains in his place. And we hear this theme of noble King Richard and old England. And when they talk later, when Maid Marian says, why are you like this? And he says, because I love my country, more or less. Norman or Saxon? What's that matter? It's injustice I hate, not the Normans. But it's lost you your rank, your lands. It's made you a hunted outlaw when you might have lived in comfort and security. What's your reward for all this? Reward? And we hear that theme again of patriotic pride and loyalty to Richard. And then when King Richard shows up in the last act of the movie, he's in disguise and he says, oh, King Richard is right here. And then he takes off the disguise and shows himself. What do you mean? Where is he? Here. And we hear that theme. sense that we hear that theme and i do think that the audience whether or not they're consciously tracking it yeah well now we're in that same musical space we have those same feelings we have this same melody and it works and Korngold intelligently touches that melody up in slightly different ways puts slightly different emphases on it depending on what's going on or like the merry men theme you hear a big rousing version of it from the main title later during the sort of building the team section where oh i just met little john you should join my team oh i just met <laughs> friar tuck you should join my team and in each moment of you should join my team we hear the kind of oh the team's coming together version of that team. <laughs> my head hums like a swarm of bees what's your name friend john little what's yours robin not robin of loxley why and I'm right glad I fell in with you. Yeah, and then I guess the payoff to that one is that the big plan for the end of the movie is that the Merry Men dress up as monks or some sort of clerics in black robes. And it is in that disguise that they're able to just waltz into the castle for what Prince John hopes is going to be his coronation. And then they're all there to give battle. But when we see the procession of the Merry Men disguised in these robes, we hear the Merry Men march. And that's sort of telling the secret you know, of who they really are. And it's not just a straight ahead version of it. It's a version that's more ominous and more mm. portentous. Right, right, right. And it's totally clear. I think that the audience 100% gets what's going on with this motive because it's not an esoteric compositional device in any way. It's like 
yeah, so I'm playing their theme, but the version that goes with this scene. And I think that Corn Gold has a very good sense of which of those things will read and how they'll read. Yeah, definitely. He does a great job laying out all these different themes and associating them with the things that they're associated with. And yeah, they all just uh, stand up and do their jobs. There's a whole book of themes in this movie, and they're pretty much all gems. Even the sappy love music, you know, it's 30s-y, it's sort of operatic, operetta-y. Mm-hmm. But it's good. It's yeah. just done with taste. His approach to the movie, he's never just marking time. And I know with Herman in the last episode, we were praising the value of deliberately marking time, which is fine, but this is like the opposite tack and it's sort of rewarding in a completely different way. It's like every moment is its own song, its own number in this musical. managed to make this 90% action picture that apparently at first blush seemed to him like a lowbrow stupid thing, he somehow saw into it and was like, oh, no, wait, it's uh, it's an operetta. Oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, you hear this love music, but then the next thing you hear, and it transitions into it very smoothly, is that King Richard slash England slash patriotism noble sentiment music. It kind of sounds like a love theme. If there wasn't a scene where King Richard showed up and said, hey, I'm King Richard and this is my theme, <laughs> you might think of that as, you know, the love theme B. And you are beautiful. You're the most beautiful. And you're leaving here at once. Please, darling, every minute you're here, you're in danger. I'll go. Mary, will you come with me? To Sherwood? I have nothing to offer you but a life of hardship and danger. What it really is, is being smart about how the subconscious of movies like this work. Like, the tender sentiments of romantic love are pretty adjacent to the tender sentiments of the noble reason why you're doing all this in the first place, Sir Robin. And uh, he just runs them together, and that just seems so smart. It's like, that's what Warner Brothers was doing. That's what the production is doing, and he is dead on to do that. Yeah, you know, to go back to this letter he wrote, he says, I am the musician of the heart of passions and psychology. So he's finding a way to bring the heart and passions and psychology into the film score, into what the music is adding to the picture. Into, indeed, the task of illustration, which at first he opposed to those things. Right. I just want to give credit. I want to call out sort of another step in the evolution of film music, since this is, again, the second oldest score that we're looking at. I feel like this is an important step that he takes here, that he is able to mix in the heart, the passions, the psychology. And he adds that to the toolkit of what film music can do. So we have this remarkable opportunity to talk about the task of orchestration in this case, because there exist recordings of Korngold playing the music, the score of this picture, on the piano. I thought it would be great to play his piano performance of the score back-to-back with the orchestrated score so we can hear what that process is like. Yeah, as I said earlier, this score is just the sound of it, the texture of it is tasty the whole way through, and that is a major part of what it's bringing. And I think it's important to recognize that the foundations of that are always laid by Korngold, but they're 
is this other guy, in fact, a couple of other guys, but one main other guy who has genuine artistic hand in some of that stuff. And his name is Hugo Friedhofer, and he was the orchestrator on this. So we've talked about orchestrating before. We had Emily Bernstein on the show, who was an orchestrator for her father, Elmer Bernstein. And, you know, we got to talk to her about how she picked instrumentation and expanded the composition that the composer had done and instantiated it in orchestral form, because there's a lot of decisions that have to be made about, all right, we want the orchestra to play these notes, but there's dozens and dozens of instruments that you have to divvy the notes up between. So that's a whole extra job. But in this case, I think we get to hear it in action a little bit, which is really cool. Yeah, so why are there orchestrators in Hollywood? Usually, it has to do with the schedule. In this case, it certainly does. As Friedhofer himself said in an interview, like, there was no reason Korngold, had he had the time, couldn't have orchestrated his own music. There's lots of works by Korngold that were 100% composed by him, like I played earlier. When he was 11, he could orchestrate. It has nothing to do with the capacity. It has to do with how fast they have to turn this stuff out. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of music in this. This is one of the highest score-to-movie duration ratios we've had, right? Yeah, all right. I guess so, if you say so. Maybe. It's close. It's up there. It's certainly not one of the short ones. Sure. So yeah, it's part of a streamlining. It's so that Korngold can compose the notes, can decide what the music is going to be for the scene, and then that music can get, you know, it's just a lot of busy work, as I think I talked through when we were talking about Ben-Hur. That's got to happen. You know, all these notes have to be written out for all these different players, and that can be happening in parallel while he is composing the music for a different scene. Right. So... The way that collaboration works, the amount of artistic input that the orchestrator has is pretty much unknowable from the outside, and it can vary a lot. It can be like, well, the composer is really more of a piano player, so the orchestrator figured out how to use an orchestra. Or it can be the composer basically notated everything, he just did it in shorthand, and then they had to turn that into longhand. Right. So it sounds from what Friedhofer said that this was kind of half and half. Here's the quote I found from Friedhofer. And we should say Hugo Friedhofer goes on to be a really accomplished film composer in his own right. Uh, Yeah, he had been orchestrating for Steiner for a while already. He was considered like the big orchestrator. And then, yes, he composed hundreds of scores in his own right, none of which are on this list, but on an expanded version of this list, they would almost certainly include um, the Best Years of Our Lives, which is the one he won an Oscar for. Yeah, absolutely. Him doing all this orchestration work was him sort of making his bones and coming up through the system. So here's what he says about his collaboration with Korngold. This is the quote. Well, it was a very, very close association. He always liked to look at the scores. We'd discuss the sketches very thoroughly. He had a fantastic way of playing the piano with an orchestral style so you could almost sense what he was hearing in the orchestra. He did not make an orchestral sketch in four to five lines, as some do, and as I do personally. He wrote a piano part, actually. We would sit together at the piano with the sequence to be orchestrated, and he would play it through, with me filling in the occasional notes that were outside the capacity of ten fingers. After the run-through at the keyboard, there would be a detailed discussion of color in the orchestra. This was a give-and-take affair, with me telling him what I heard, and he giving me his conception for what the color should be. Then I'd make careful inquiry as to those places in his sketch which were capable of being set as they stood, i.e. without any revoicing changes of register, octave doubling, etc. When I'd completed the sections he'd given me, he and I would go through the full score together and in detail. As time went on, he came to rely more and more on my discretion in the matter of color and voicing. So let's sort of imagine that process. We get this little window into it. So let's play the recording of Corn gold playing the piano for the love scene with that patriotic theme we were talking about.
And now let's hear that same music after Friedhofer has orchestrated it. difference between Korngold and Friedhofer is not necessarily what we just heard, but somewhere in there, the two of them worked this out. Yeah, you know, we've used the word color in the past to refer to different instrumental choices. Friedhofer, in that passage you read, used the word color as well. I think it's actually not dissimilar from, like, comic book artists, where one guy inks the outline of the drawings, and then somebody else colors them in, and they both have a different skill set to them. And, you know, in comic books, they're both credited. They're not presented as equitably in film music, actually, but the orchestrator absolutely does a crucial job. And I think this is all important because, as I've mentioned, but let's just give one more example. This orchestration is gorgeous and something to get lost in. And it right off the bat shows that it's something special. I love this moment, like on the second page of the score, at the beginning of the movie, you hear the march theme, and then it switches to like the B motive of the march theme. It goes from the rollicking, brass-heavy arrangement to the first theme, suddenly, to this exquisite, subtle surface. and celeste and the piano all mixed together playing the tune there with a single muted trumpet kind of putting a little glint on the edge of it. Then there's pizzicato in the background with vibraphone accents and marimba giving it this weird, hushed, mischievous sound and harp flourishes. Just to kind of add a little extra color in these little gaps where you don't expect it. And it just suddenly, you know, to switch from one color to the next one, I light up every time that happens. And then listen, at the end of this section, it goes to this new texture with this horn solo. It's like the equivalent of the Technicolor, you know, a scene with all these banners of different colors, like a green right next to a red, and it and it pops. Yeah, or it's kind of like, you know, turning the pages of that beautifully illustrated book you were talking about and seeing a whole new scene, you know, just right there immediately in front of you. That really needs to be credited to Korngold and Friedhofer together. That kind of detail work is exactly the stuff that falls in this space between the two of them. Great. And the other thing I do think we need to just touch on so that battle music that we had actually heard a couple times, that first battle, and indeed Robin Hood's introduction, Robin Hood's theme, and indeed big chunks of this score are lifted from a piece that Korngold wrote when he was 22 or so, you know, 18 years earlier. He, I think, resorted to doing this in part to ease the pressure he felt to write action music. You know, it's difficult to write action music. It's a lot of stuff to write. It's a lot of notes. It's a lot of notes. It's a lot of work to do. 
he felt trepidation about taking on the assignment in the first place. Maybe this made it seem easier for him. Maybe it just seemed like an efficient way to meet the schedule. Actually, I think I read that his father exhorted him to use this theme from this previous orchestral piece for Robin Hood. Yeah, I read that somewhere too, that it was his father's suggestion. Which is always my favorite way to compose, is to have my father suggest ways. Just wait for your parents to give you suggestions, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, his father made a great suggestion here. It's pretty (laughs) brilliant because this piece called Sursum Corda, Lift Up Your Hearts. Like we said, you know, Korngold was a child prodigy. So as he reached the end of his teens, he was trying to flex his muscles. So this is a fairly ambitious piece he wrote. It's a 20-minute tone poem, very much following in the footsteps or trying to take up the same task as the famous Richard Strauss tone poems. And it's kind of a mess, and it doesn't work. And I think that part of the reason that it seemed like fodder for reuse was because it had not gone over well at its premiere, and probably he considered it a failed or retired piece and fair game for picking at. But he really picks out not just the theme at the beginning, but whole sections of it. I mean, the piece is kind of interesting because it's hard to follow, but it also feels kind of like the entire future of movie scoring just (laughs) compressed into 20 crazy minutes. It's got beautiful sound in it. original piece which I sat through the entirety of it's a very confusing piece it has way more ideas than it knows what to do with the form is totally not clear unless you're following along in a score and even then you sort of have to squint it has so many themes and they run together and he's constantly changing them it's a little out of control okay so here's the same passage in Robin Hood played a lot faster Reportedly lower purpose, less ambitious purpose by you know downgrading what he was doing with the thematic parts and hammering them, and, you know, repeating them so that we get used to them. Suddenly their character becomes so much better delineated. They serve so much better. The slightly high-minded place I wanted to go with this is the snooty world that had such high hopes for Korngold when he was this child prodigy. Mahler and Strauss and Zemlinsky, the Viennese elite high art composers, you know, thought, oh, this kid has a brilliant future. And there's this idea out there that he didn't live up to his potential he had as a prodigy because he didn't innovate the way that people hoped that this wunderkind would innovate. But I think that the gift to cinema that he brought by turning these particular skills to this particular task is an innovation, constitutes an innovation. This is not the use for which this music was intended. It's not the use for which this musical language was intended. But when you take its original context and then you take its ultimate form in Robin Hood, it's so clear that this is a use of this work that has more artistic integrity. It makes the earlier work a footnote to this. You know, he may have borrowed from an old piece, but here is where it found its proper form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not all grand classical music works and is a success. And so... Yeah, I just saw this as a kind of counterexample to the standing bias that like, ooh, a tone poem for the concert hall with a Latin title (laughs) about the spirit 
I mean, I don't even know what it's about. I tried to find program notes. I couldn't find any explication of exactly what was going on over these 20 minutes. But uh, basically, the spirit was triumphing. Pretty sure that's what was going on. <laughs> Good guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the triumph of the spirit. Now, that's art. And like a 90% action picture about Errol Flynn jumping around and sword fighting made by Warner Brothers is not. Uh, I just feel like just sit with the score to Robin Hood and then sit with Sorsum Corda from which it draws. And I dare you to tell me that it has not achieved a greater artistic end in The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah, well, here, here. I really am enjoying sticking up for the true artistic greatness of what film music can do. Obvs. Obvs. Yeah. I had a thought in passing about where some of that bias comes from. It occurred to me that critics and indeed musicians themselves were more likely to be skeptical of film music because they had less access to it because it's a studio music and it only gets performed once. It doesn't have a performance tradition, so there's no sort of scene. When Korngold was doing an opera in Vienna or wherever, think of all these people who had sort of motivation to think about whether what he was doing was good and high and important. And then if he goes and, you know, plays this stuff once in a studio... And indeed, I think they played it once, you know, like a lot of this stuff is just this side of sight reading. It's incredible, these orchestras. Yeah, it's just, of course, a conversation is not going to spring up about it. I don't know. What do you think? Is that a stretch or is there something there? No, I think there's definitely something there. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to pat us on the back too much, but if there's one thing you can say about our conversations about film music, Andy, it's that we are having conversations about film music. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> For better and for worse, we are having conversations about film music. Can't be denied. Speaking of better and worse, I think we have both made it clear that this is going to go above King Kong on our rankings of these scores we're talking about. So how high up is it going to go? Let me start the bidding here. Please. Is this, Andy, going to go above Ben-Hur for you? Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Okay. Why, of course? Something that Korngold has going for him is the sense of naturalness. It never feels like... You know, we said a lot of stuff about Ben-Hur, like, it's the most picture, it's the yeah. biggest spectacle. It was, like, pushing. Mm -hmm. It was, really had something to sell you. And I feel like Korngold is really occupying that space in this beautiful, natural, joyous, buoyant way. And, like... Wow, yeah, great. That's worth so much more to me. Yeah, joyous, buoyant, what could be better? Yeah. Very lovely wording there. Uh, okay, so <laughs> let's skip up one. Is this going to beat Streetcar Named Desire for you? Um... Or you just say where you want to put it. Or maybe you want me to... No, well, why don't you say where you want to put it? You forced me to go first last time. That's true. Comfortable. Why don't you just <laughs> dig in and do this? Fair enough. Okay. Uh, boy, I still don't really know. Okay. I am also going to put it above Ben-Hur on my list. Next one up from Ben-Hur that I have is Sunset Boulevard, which, you know, I really liked, but I had issues with. So maybe this was a more overall joyously convincing experience. And let's see. Next one up from that, I have Planet of the Apes. I really like Planet of the Apes a lot. But maybe, you know, I gave King Kong sort of extra points in my ranking for being the progenitor of the idea of film music in the first place and getting there first. And I think Korngold really also deserves a lot of credit for getting to a lot of what film music is first, or at least at the beginning. So maybe that is worth enough points to me that I am going to put it above Planet of the Apes, below On the Waterfront. I think it's still not quite, for me, cracking the really sort of special emotional experience I had with that movie and with the ones above it. But it's really up there, so I'm going with above Planet of the Apes, below On the Waterfront for me. Okay. 
you said that your ready-to-go, pretentious, classicist answer to what's the best film score was Vertigo. I thought, I didn't really have that, but this would be such a satisfying one. Like, the <laughs> craftsmanship... I know you've said several times, you know, John Williams, this is the craftsmanship of the highest caliber. I feel like, let's just be honest, there is such a thing as a higher caliber. This feels like it is on par with Richard Strauss. It's like, this guy was as good as those guys. This guy was as big and real as the great classical composers. He just happened to put his skills to this very commercial, very popular use. And like, isn't that my favorite thing? Isn't that the best possible thing? What is this, my favorite score? And then I thought... Well, but that distinction between a psychological score and an illustrative score matters to me. Despite all of the insight that it shows, it is fundamentally kind of balletic illustrative score instead of, you know, all the stuff we talked about Vertigo doing and contributing and all the stuff we talked about E.T. contributing to the meaning. I would feel wrong putting it at the top above those because of the emphasis that we're making on this show. If it were a list of like best albums to listen to of film music, I might say, yeah, Korngold is as good as it gets. But yeah, it has to go below those. So my scratching my chin had a lot to do with does it go above or below the block of To Kill a Mockingbird and A Streetcar Named Desire? Well, those are definitely psychological scores. Because of the technicolor, because of the way the movie is kind of a big musical without songs, or I think this is a phrase associated with Korngold. I don't know if it's an actual quote from him or just a quote that people so much wish he had said that they sometimes misattribute to him, but that his scores are like operas without singing. I thought, yeah, that's what this is like. And I think I'm going to put it in my third place spot as as good as you can get without being Vertigo and E.T., without being that essential to what goes on. Uh, yeah. And here's another justification I gave myself as I was thinking this through. I was like, well, but this isn't really giving me a variety of emotions. It's just kind of keeping me in one place. Yeah. But then I thought, the emotion it's giving me is joy. And you're like, (laughs) that's really worth a lot. That's a special achievement. I think it's easy to undercredit something that just makes you happy as having done anything. Yeah, I just used the word buoyant, but I'm going to say it again. It is so sparkling and buoyant and delicious, and it makes the movie be that by being that with such truly the highest caliber of craft there is, and I'm now insulting some other people that we said were the highest caliber by saying that. This is even better than that stuff. That's how I feel about this. All right, well, I mean, I... Ugh, I push back a little bit on the idea that this is obviously of a higher caliber than... I didn't say obviously. <laughs> okay. I just want to respond to that, that the ones that I've got above this on the list, the thing that I am prizing above that, you know, super well-realized buoyancy that this absolutely has and that I love it for, but the things that I have above it, what they also have in addition to, you know, I think comparable compositional skill is they have a sensitivity to the movement of the drama. Like you said, this sort of keeps you in one place emotionally. And it's a great emotion. It's a great place to be in. But it doesn't have insight into the way the drama flows from moment to moment and matches up with things that the characters do and feelings that the characters have and feelings that the audience has. I think there's more dramatic insight, psychological insight that those scores above it on my list are linking into and heightening and transcending alongside of that yeah i'm prizing that kind of storytelling facet i think above the textural facet okay well let me make a slight sideways defense i'm gonna parry that (laughs) that 
I think that there is a kind of storytelling going on here, and it's exactly the kind of storytelling that we are so comfortable with from comic book superhero movies and from, indeed, the number one movie on this list, which makes a kind of deliberate nod back to Korngold. We will talk about it at length when we get there. It's all a romp, as you said. It's all rollicking good fun, but it's rollicking fun with a structure. It's just a, a territory that we all know so, so well because this back in 1938 nailed it. And then, you know, we've got literally 80 years of movies that are built kind of on this model. You know, I don't want to give too much credit to this one movie without being a greater scholar of film history. I don't know. Maybe there are some other movies that are just as influential in the genre of popcorn movies as we know them now from just as early. But I really feel like what Korngold did in his output as a whole, and especially here is map that out. It really is a moment-to-moment thing. We really do get walked from place to place just with such ease that it seems like nothing is happening, but something great is happening. You know, when you talked about being thrilled, thrilled by the bike chase in E.T., and like you counted that as your reason for putting it above Vertigo at the end of the last episode, agonized though that decision was, and I feel kind of the same way. Like, I okay can be thrilled by music, and here's a movie that harnessed my being thrilled by music to the engine that makes the movie go. Yeah, well, I mean, you're weighting, you know, different aspects of this different ways and according to how you feel. And it's almost as though this kind of a ranking is totally subjective and absurd and ridiculous and pointless, right? Yeah. I don't know if anybody has ever said that before, but... It's possible. I think that the making this kind of ranking is a totally unique thought that's occurring to me for the first time right now. is kind of absurd. Oh, you feel skeptical about it? Yeah, I don't know. But anyway... Well, let's just rank a few more and see. Maybe once <laughs> we get a few more on there, we'll be like, you know what? We've really done some something important and absolute here. Yeah. We've really determined something for all time, and it's good that we did this. Let's just see if that's what we say in a few more episodes. Yeah, once we get a few more on there, and, you know, next time we're going to hear what these few morons think about <laughs> Dmitry Tiomkin's score for High Noon. It's the second Western that we're going to come across since the very first episode we did. Mm-hmm. Pretty different kind of Western. Yeah, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Andy. Have you ever seen this movie? Long time ago, as a kid. All right. I've seen it a little more recently than that. I have no particular expectations for that, but let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, if you like this episode, check out all the other episodes. There are quite a few at this point. How many are there? This is 15? This is 16. 16. So there's 15 more if this was your first one and you were inspired to listen to 15 more hours of this. (laughs) More than 15 more hours. Yikes. So take your time. And then when you're done, when you've gotten through all of those (laughs) and you want to be the first to hear the next one, Subscribe uh, on iTunes or in other places. Yeah, wherever you get your podcasts. But a great place to leave a review, which would be helpful to us, is on iTunes. Is that right, John? That is right. And if you feel moved to join in the conversation or feedback at us and to us, you can reach us at Score Settlers on Twitter. Okay, ready to put this one to bed? Yeah, my gosh, I hope it's sleeping already. Let's listen to some more fun music next time, Andy. Let's do that, John. See you there.